0: I'm glad to be with you here. I'm with my wife, uh, Felicitas, and uh, my first attempt to be in your city was earlier this year in in April for something completely different. It didn't work out, and it's clear to me now that in the Lord's providence, uh, He wanted my very first visit to your neck of the woods to be at Heritage. Baptist Church, and I rejoice in the fellowship that my wife and I have already experienced. Uh, It's good to be with you at a time when you are considering the work of missions under your uh, global outreach emphasis Sunday. And um, our own church is involved in, in missions work. We're currently Uh, Overseeing just under 20 church plants, some of them in our country, others in the wider area of uh, uh, Africa, in different African countries. In fact, uh, we began this year with 20 churches being planted. As I speak today, we're down to 18 because while we've been here, we've been in your country for about a month, uh, two churches have been set apart by elders in our church to be independent churches. One of them is happening this morning. Well, it happened since there are six hours uh, behind us. So the next time I'm peeping at the Internet, we will be seeing um, yet another church out of the nest. And it's such a joy to see the, the power of the gospel uh, winning more and more lives i 'm sharing with you from first corinthians so I encourage you to turn there uh, first corinthians chapter one both in this service and also in the uh, two services this afternoon so from verse eighteen to verse twenty five uh, in three parts uh, this first service or first sermon, I will be primarily dealing with verse 18, but I want us to read the whole of this section together. So if you're there, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I commence reading from verse 18. The Bible says there, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The longer that I have lived uh, on this planet, the more I am convinced that the world's only hope is really in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for individuals who have not experienced this saving power, that statement that I have just made is is really nothing to them. In fact, often they wonder why they should ever even be any excitement about this reality. Uh, Because as we shall be seeing in a moment, it just doesn't register with them. However, if you are a Christian, if you've experienced the the saving power of Christ, this statement that I've just made means the world to you. You know that God visited you in power, that he has transformed you, that you've known something of uh, uh, the weight of the guilt of sin being removed from you. And it is this contrast between the, the world basically looking at this message and shoving it into the background and Christians seeing this as the most glorious and and wonderful and, and magnificent message that the whole world needs to know that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this passage of Scripture. The reason why he's doing so is because of the state that the Christian church in Corinth was at this time. It was a church that was badly divided uh, between the different previous preachers of the church and it was divided primarily because of the cultural context in which the church was. In the Greco-Roman um, no, uh, world, the, the culture was one of erot- oratory and also Uh, philosophies and so they tended to uh, think in terms of um, through such teachers and following such teachers that there would be utopia coming uh, in due season. And so that kind of thinking that was out there in the world was the one that was seeping into the context of the church. And hence the statements that we find uh, earlier in chapter 1, each one saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And the Apostle Paul was basically saying to the Christians that there should be nothing of that in the context of the church because what has produced the Christian church has not been Oratory on the part of the preachers and speakers has not been some kind of worldly philosophy. It's been the power of God. God himself doing this work. And therefore, we ought not to be thinking the way in which the world thinks. And it is as he opens up that argument that he begins in the verse that we are looking at this morning with the words, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You can't miss the contrast there. Hence the title of my sermon, The Cross is Both Folly and Powerful. The cross is both folly and powerful. What does the Apostle Paul mean by those words for the word of the cross? Really, it is the logos of the cross, the, the logic of Calvary. What does he mean by that? It's certainly not purely news about what happened um, a few years earlier when Jesus of uh, Nazareth was rushed to the cross and finally crucified there. That would have been common news around um, this part of the world at the time the Apostle Paul was living. So surely it is something much more than that. And that's why I have used the phrase, the logic of Calvary. In other words, when the Apostle Paul speaks here about the word of the cross, he's really meaning the interpretation that the Christian church put upon this historic event. Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross was common knowledge. How did the apostles understand this? What, was, what were they proclaiming as they were preaching this message? I tend to hang my thoughts on three S's. Um, the first S being suffering, the second S being substitution, and the third S being Satisfaction. The first part, which is suffering, would have been common knowledge in the days in which the Apostle Paul wrote. It's us who need to be reminded that the cross, crucifixion, was the worst form of punishment that was invented by human minds and human cruelty at the time the Lord Jesus Christ lived. Our Lord himself knew this as he was progressing towards this particular event when finally he reached the cross. He knew it because every so often he he would express to the disciples. He would say words like, my my heart is in anguish, my soul is in anguish, almost to the point of death. And then he says, should I say to the Father, save me from this hour? In other words, he he knew that what he was walking towards was an excruciatingly painful death. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he finally went to the cross, you will recall that he he fell down and prayed to God, saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In fact, one of the gospel authors speaks about the fact that he prayed with such intensity that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. All these um, gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, slow down as they are getting towards the time when Jesus Christ was finally crucified. And as you read the accounts, you notice that they they do nothing whatsoever to try and hide the the suffering that our savior was to undergo. Uh, From the moment he was arrested to the time that he went through the mock trial under Pilate and later even meeting with Herod, to the torture that he suffered at the hands of uh, the, the Roman soldiers as they forced that crown of thorns on his head and beat him um, in the, with ex- excruciating pain on his back, and finally forced him to, in weakness, to carry this cross all the way to the point of crucifixion with a bit of help in the final steps, the way in which he is finally nailed uh, to that cross, the way in which he is mocked in the midst of all the pain that he is undergoing on that cross. The, the, The writers of the Gospels don't hide this from us because they do want us to know Jesus suffered. He suffered intensely. He suffered physically. But behind all that also is the reality he suffered spiritually too. There was a spiritual reality that was taking place there because on the cross, Jesus was not just suffering the normal physical pain But he was undergoing the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, against his people that he was to suffer, and indeed he suffered. Well, that's already taking me into the second S, isn't it? Which is suffering and then substitution. It answers the question, why did Jesus suffer? Especially because when you read his account, the accounts both uh, of, in terms of prophecy about him, but also fulfilled prophecy in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was a good man. He was one who fed the hungry. He was one who healed the sick. He's one who who raised the dead. He went about doing good, literally, from sunrise to sunset. He he was preaching the good news, as it was already uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. And he was also a righteous man. At one time, he challenged his accusers. He said, which one among you accuses me of wrong? And none of them, none of them attempted to do anything like that. And yet, he died the most cruel death. How? Why? Well, the answer lies in the word substitute. He he stood in the place of his people. To borrow the words of um, John 3.16, that... We, we sang at the beginning of this service, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, Jesus, who was good and righteous, then took our place And took on himself the liability of our sin. And consequently, God poured upon him the wrath that we deserve. So that if we believe in him, we might be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, that we might be declared indeed righteous in his sight, in God's sight. It was an act of substitution. The Apostle Paul refers to this in Second Corinthians and chapter five, the very last verse. He says that, "For our sake, He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So the first he is referring to God, for our sake, He, God, made him, Jesus, to be seen." who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what was happening at Calvary. That's the explanation, the interpretation that the apostle Paul and the early preachers of the gospel were putting upon Jesus of Nazareth hanging there. And the reason why he could die for the sins of many is because he is God, the Son. He's of infinite value. And therefore, if a million, million, million worlds were to be saved, it would still be sufficient because it is God, the Son, who was hanging there. And then comes the third S, and it is satisfaction. Satisfaction. One of the issues that God often had against the the people of Israel was their tendency to bring defiled animals, blind, lame animals, animals that didn't want to have anything to do with, that they couldn't sell in the market. Those are the ones they then brought to the priests and offered a sacrifice. And God in the book of Malachi challenges them and says, try offering those to your governor, your governors. Let's see if they would accept you and accept your sacrifice. Well, in this particular case, this is the darling of God. This is the one of whom God says... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is one of infinite godliness and infinite holiness and infinite righteousness who finally makes his way to the cross. He is an unblemished, acceptable sacrifice as far as the the thrice holy eyes of God could see. And the proof of his accepting and being satisfied with that sacrifice is evident three days after the cross. When God breaks the bands of death and his son walks out free, God is absolutely satisfied with this one sacrifice, one substitution of his own son upon the cross. And therefore, on that basis and on that basis alone, he saves sinners. There is no other good news. There is no other way in which God Reconciles sinners to himself except through this. That's the word of the cross. Well, how does the world receive it? We are told there in our text back to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Well, we noticed that at the very beginning of my, my message. I said that's the reality that we, we often experience. Um, if you ever went through this experience, I'm sure you will easily testify of it as a young Christian, just saved, fresh from the altar, so to speak. You, you you are rejoicing in your sins being forgiven, recalling that moment when you, you, you cried to the Lord that he might forgive you of your sins, and, and you've experienced the peace of sins forgiven. You, you've experienced the joy of being liberated from this the chains of, of sin that held you bound. You, you want to tell the world about it. And you go to your relatives, to your siblings, to your friends. You're excited about this. Jesus saves! Hey! And the reaction is like people taking a whole bucket of water and just pouring it on top of you. And you wonder how you can receive This lukewarm or perhaps antagonistic response from people when you are sharing with them good news. Well, all you have to do is to go back a few months and years to your own reaction to this message and the way in which we're treating it as though it's boring stuff. Perhaps you were even antagonistic to people that we're sharing this message with you, then you begin to realize, ah, it is folly to those who are perishing. I remember many years ago, probably when I was doing my university studies, my uh, undergraduate studies, seeing um, a picture, it was a painting of uh, the United Nations building, and it's I can't remember whether the building was the one in Geneva or here in in the U.S., but um, that building, uh, sort of skyscraper kind of building, had a huge picture, imaginary picture, of Jesus Christ on the outside and is knocking on those huge windows. And the message at the bottom was, that here are the leaders of the world who are discussing how to have peace in this world. And yet they have locked out the prince of peace who brings peace to the world. It's because to them that's folly. It's it's foolishness. It's it's irrelevant to the struggles that are there in today's world. The the wars that are taking place, the the diseases that people are wrestling with, the the poverty that is there in the world, the breakdown of of marriage and uh, individuals fighting one another and so on. They think it's, it's completely irrelevant to that. The, the skyrocketing of corruption that is in the world. The build-up of armaments. And they say, how can someone dying on a cross upon being accused of some criminal activity 2,000 years ago finally nailed to the cross, dying, how can that have any effect, positive effect, upon our world today with all the trouble that it is going through? To them, it is folly. It's foolishness. And that's one reason why the the world thinks it's, It's madness, and it's wrong for the Christian church to be seeking to convert people in their work of missions. They tend to say, why don't you keep your religion to yourself, man? What's wrong with you? Why do you go on and start disturbing other people? They've got their own religions. So keep your Christianity to yourself. This is some form of imperialism or or colonialism, some, some spiritual colonialism. So keep it to yourself. And there tends to be this antagonism against the Christian church. But to us who are being saved, the Apostle Paul says, It is the power of God. What a contrast. Because on one hand, you've got people that are looking at this and they are saying it's folly. On the other, you've got individuals who have experienced the power of God through the preaching of the gospel, through the word of the cross. And perhaps you, you've heard testimonies like this. Individuals coming from the same family, coming from the same university, hostel, coming to church, sitting in these same pews, and while others think it's, it's boring stuff, looking at their watches, when is this going to be over so that we can get home for you? That became the... the day when you were changed for the rest of your life and for all eternity. Sitting there, it was as though you were the only one whom the preacher knew. It was as though you were closed in with God himself, your creator, it was as though God was bringing out all your sins, your, your secret sins, your open sins, and, and, and you could sense within your own soul that you deserve to go to hell, and that if the ground could give way under you, that's exactly where you would go. And in the midst of that reality, somehow the message of Christ crucified began to make sense. His suffering on the cross. You are saying to yourself, that's what I deserve because of my sin. Then you began to understand that, yes, he he suffered the way he did in your place as your substitute because of a God who genuinely loves you and wants you to come to glory. And that whereas all your efforts at self-righteousness and so on came to nothing before a God who is thrice holy with respect to Jesus, he was fully satisfied. And therefore, instead of continuing to try to earn your, your own salvation, you abandon all that and simply cry to Jesus Christ to save you. And that day, he did. That day, that crushing weight of the guilt of sin fell off your back. That day, that sin that held you in its vice let go. And you could look at it in the face and say no by the grace of Almighty God. While others think this is folly, for you in that event, you were completely transformed, you were given a peace and joy you never knew, you were a person who, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, you were a new creature in Christ. Brand Well, that's what Paul is saying here. That's what the gospel is. It's both folly and power. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What do we say then in response to this? Well, it's primarily this. We must never apologize to the world concerning this gospel and concerning our commitment to the work of missions, spreading this news across our city, across our nation, across the oceans. We must never apologize. I mean, would you apologize to a person who being born blind has never seen different colors? and you are there explaining to him the color of leaves in a tree, and you're talking in terms of green, and he's arguing back at you. He's even doing this, saying you are crazy. Would you apologize? Would you be ashamed of what you're talking about? Of course not. Rather, the right response is one of sympathy. It's to sympathize with such a person, On one hand, and then on the other, it is to thank God that has given you eyes to see, that you can see what others cannot see. Therefore, to thank him, to be full of gratitude. Well, friends, that's exactly the way it must be with us with respect to this matter. When the world thinks we are mad, when the world thinks this is all foolishness, We don't cave in with embarrassment and shame. We don't allow ourselves to be silenced. Rather, we pray for the world. We pray that the way God opened our eyes, he might open their eyes too. And then, we keep sharing this message, praying that perhaps one day, he might do to them what he did to us, that he might open their eyes. That we might continue in the midst of all this rejoicing and celebrating God's goodness when his power invaded our lives. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God in heaven, thank you. Thank you that your servant Paul was absolutely convinced about this matter. That when he went into Corinth, he made absolutely no attempt to mimic the orators and philosophers of his own day. Rather, in weakness and in stammering, he declared the word of the cross, Christ and him crucified. Father, help us to do the same, despite the attitude of those who are perishing. Help us to proclaim Christ and help us to rejoice in Christ and him crucified. We plead for this in Jesus' name.